We're going to begin week four tonight. And the first three weeks we have been talking about uh, how, how the scriptures give us the message of God's love, God's desire to be in relationship, and God's desire to restore and redeem. And we said, how does God do that? God does that by calling people. God restores through people. And so he calls a guy first named Abram and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And our story took off from there. We talked about his descendants, his descendants to go to Joseph, and they end up in Egypt. And then later, as they have multiplied, that God rescues them from Egypt and brings them through the wilderness for 40 years to a desert, uh, into, through the desert into a place, the place that God promised Abram 750 years earlier and brings them there and plants them there and begins a community. And it's fractured because it's families and it's tribes, they're, they're kind of disconnected. And there are people who, who uh, serve as kind of, they're, they're not judicial leaders, but they're uh, military leaders and we call them judges. And some judges were, and the judges were people who rescued Israel in times of oppression by their neighbors. And we saw that pattern that the people sin, the people disobey God. They fall into trouble with their neighbors. They serve their neighbors. God raises up a judge, a military leader to lead them out of that. And then what happens after that? They behave and they follow God and then they fall into sin again. And another foreign, you get the idea. Another foreign leader comes and this pattern comes. And, and, and where we left off last, two weeks ago, last time we were together, is uh, the people were getting really tired of this. And they said, you know, we would probably do better if we were united together and we had a strong leader over all of us uh, to fight our battles. And so that was 1 Samuel chapter 8, and that's where we begin tonight. Now, it is fair to say, I want to be clear, I think it is pretty clear that this is not a unanimous view. This is not a unanimous view. Uh, because what we find is that later that God anoints someone named Saul. Saul's chief qualification seems to be that he's tough, and he's tall, and handsome. He looks the part. But it's fair to say that God does, in fact, uh, anoint him and it, through the prophet Samuel. And Samuel, and when we say that, we, we, we think of anointing as, as, as what I do is, is a little cross on the forehead in oil. But what they did is they took the whole jug and poured it over his head. I don't know how long it took to wash his hair out after that. But it said, the Lord has anointed, this is in 1 Samuel 10, the Lord has anointed you ruler over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. 10.1. And so what we see here, though, is because we, we know it's probably, it was probably a disputed but majority, perhaps, view that Saul later had to be taken around and over and over again. They had to say, this is Saul, our king. And they're like, are you sure? Uh, and then he wins a victory. And they're like, actually, this is a guy we can get behind. And so at the beginning here with Saul, we see with, what we're going to see, though, is from Saul on to Solomon, we're going to see an important to note progression 
and even transformation in the nature uh, of Israel, of the state. In 1 Samuel, at the beginning, we find that the people religiously, they make pilgrimages to a small, to a small shrine at a place called Shiloh, the place where Eli and later uh, Samuel minister. But by the end, the people worship God in an elaborately, expensively, bankruptingly expensive temple under a king named Solomon. That is going to be kind of an image because, you see, God is continuing to form these people. So from deliverance and leadership under some charismatic leaders, Moses and Joshua, to the time of judges, times of fracture, to the time where they're being united and being brought together. Um, and so Saul is a, Saul's chief ability is that he is able to raise an army. Uh, he is able to uh, defeat their enemies. And so over time, as they see this, as the people see this, they see this as someone they can get behind. Now I want to say something a little bit about kingship. 1 Samuel 8 tells us something important, that having a king will take away uh, some of what you have. And we noted that there's probably a pretty strong parallel to saying that the portion that you give to God, you're now going to give to this king, to this, this central government. And we're going to see in the, in the Samuel tradition, uh, later on in 2 Samuel, you'll see the closing as we, as uh, under David, we see the centralization from a place based on families to a place based on government officials. And that transformation takes place during the reign of King David. So, but Saul is pretty much a military leader. We don't see a whole lot about Saul building things. In fact, Saul, he kind of goes back to farming, and then they need him up. Oh, we need you now to go raise the army and defeat our enemies. And, uh, but Saul is important. Saul, Saul is anointed as king because God said so. There's something important to be said for this. In much of the ancient world, Egyptian, what, Egyptian probably the most famous that we would be aware of, what do we know about their king? What did their kings claim for themselves? That they were God. They weren't just God, like they were gods themselves. When they died, they would build elaborate temples to them for their burial known as pyramids. Right, you're like, why would you build something that lavish? We've got maybe the example of the Taj Mahal, which was the monument of a, of a grieving king to his wife. But for the pyramids, they were religious temples. And so they were gods. Now, but it's pretty clear here in the Bible, Saul is David and Solomon. No king is a god. They exist to be a representative of God. God is still the true king. And they embody the covenant. Just as Abram and God made the covenant, then Moses and God made the covenant. So the king is intended to be the embodiment of the people making the covenant with God. We talked about how important the covenant is. So they serve God. Here's the problem with Saul. This is going to come as a great surprise. Eventually, it becomes less about God and more about Saul. Who'd have guessed, right? And so later what happens is there's this at the end in chapter at the end of God's anointing of 
of, of Saul is in 1 Samuel 15, which is an odd little story. Because Samuel says to God, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel, and so therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, right? This one who made you king, listen to his words. I'm going to punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. I want you to go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is another one of those passages that's a hard one, right? Because, like, why would God do this? Part of that is this is some way of God executing judgment. Uh, we think, well, aren't they good people? They're, they're, the Bible's, there are no good people. There are no people beyond the judgment of God. And we, we may find trouble there, but I, I just... But I want to almost put that aside because that's almost beside the point here. So what happens? Saul goes. He defeats the Amalekites. He takes the king alive. And he kills all the people. But he, keep, but he spares the king. And verse 9. And the best of the sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and everything that was valuable, what did Saul do? What did he, he kept them. What did God say to do? Destroy them. But all that was despised and worthless, what happened? They destroyed those. Isn't that interesting? See, you're like, well, wasn't Saul showing mercy? No. See, we would think that, but no, what happens? Instead, he says, those things, why would I, why would I destroy something that can benefit me? If it doesn't benefit me, okay, that's right. God said destroy them. Get rid of them. It doesn't benefit me. But when it benefits me, we'll keep them. So what happened? Is God in it for what is Saul in it for what God wants? He's in it for what he wants. And so the word of the Lord came to Samuel. God says, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Isn't God for just ahead and knows this and isn't that 2,000 years later or more a lesson for us I'm sorry what was that repeat that I this isn't God four chess moves ahead uh, at least yes Solomon, and this is an example of what we should be attended to well I think there is a lesson there about the timeless will of God yeah obedience is God's desire absolutely uh, I think God foreknows this um, I think he gives them the kind of king they want. And I think it's pretty clear. I think you're going to find when you read this, this is pretty well written from the, from the point of view of David. I believe God inspired it all, tip to tail. But I also believe it's written through human minds. I believe that Samuel is written, the first Samuel, first, second Kings, and Chronicles is written through the lens of David. And so Saul does this. Saul, he has his... his his desire is somewhat in the right place, but his heart is not. And so God has anointed Saul, and what does God do? He takes the anointing away and puts it on this young man named David. So I preached a lot of sermons on this because it's really good. In 1 Samuel 16, God takes, God, with, with Saul, God took the first and the best, the tallest the handsomest, the most proven leader. But David is the opposite. So 
the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Small problem. What's the small problem at this point? He doesn't know which son. Also, Saul, God may have removed the anointing, but Saul is still alive and still king. And Saul turns out kind of a mean dude. <laughs> so, so he goes to Jesse and he says, Saul finds out I'm going to bring a new king in. Well, you know, it turns out that when it comes down to Saul's interest versus God's interest, we already know where Saul stands. Not a terrible guy, but when the chips are down, he's number one which is not uncommon <laughs> among human nature. And so he goes to this son, and the guy says, I have come, and I want to sacrifice with you. I don't know if, Jesse, it, I have come and uh, sacrifice. I'm going to come to sacrifice with you and bring your sons. And so Jesse brings his sons, and of course he brings the oldest sons. And, and he asks each one to come and pass before the, the, this great prophet, this amazing prophet, a leader among the people. I mean, they, just to think of how amazed they would be to have them in their little town. And so what happens? He, he does it, obviously, oldest to youngest. And so God, so some way God is speaking to Samuel and says, this isn't the one. The first one comes and he's like, this is the one. And it's not him. And they go through... And uh, they, they passed seven of the sons, and they say, well, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. He said, are all your sons here? He says, well, there's one more. So it was like, I'm getting tired. It's late. We need to eat. So bring him here. And immediately David comes, and he is the youngest, and says he was ruddy, but though had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord that took away from Saul came mightily upon David from that day forward. So in God's mind, who's the king? But in everyone else's mind, who's the king? Could this possibly be a problem? Okay. So, but, this, but, but see what we see here is, so we think, oh, it's a nice, easy transition. It is not. It's going to take the rest of the book of 1 Samuel to unfold this transition. And this is not a peaceful one. But God is at work. The lesson we see here is God is, God is the one who is the, uh, oversees uh, human destiny and human events. It's very clear in this uh, in, in, in these passages. So what happens? David is, comes from the backwoods, and all of a sudden, as the spirit had departed from Saul, an evil spirit torments him. And so Saul, who is in general reasonably about average, I would say, now turns into a paranoid madman. He has terrible headaches that torment him and that can only be relieved by somebody playing, uh, playing the liar. And guess who is brought to play the liar for Saul? It's David. What a coincidence. And, Dave, and Saul brings David into the inner circle. He becomes Saul's armor bearer, which is like his number two guy uh, when they're fighting. And king's main purpose is to lead battles. If you're thinking king like Queen Elizabeth, you need to think more like four-star, five-star general king. That's a little more the image you need than... Now, when we get to Solomon, the problem is now he's 
transition to full-on Queen Elizabeth, who's apparently a very lovely person, but not quite what we have in mind here. Um, and so over time, it finds that David defeats Goliath. This is a sign, just as Saul is legitimizing his kingship by his military victories. David is, and David's military victories are even more impossible. David and Goliath is meant to be an impossible match. But yet, through the power of God, David says, The Lord, this is 1737, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And he goes, he's not, Saul offers him his armor, it doesn't fit. So David takes his armor off, comes only with what he has, the staff in his hand, five stones from the river, puts them in his shepherd's bag, his sling is in his hand, he draws near to the Philistines. You're imagining at this point it's like a child with a slingshot. And yet with one shot, David prevails. The Philistine, he grabs the Philistine's cord, cuts off his head, and takes the head of Goliath as a trophy. And Jonathan, Saul's son, is amazed. God puts, see, God is continuing to open doors to relationships for, with, uh, and Jonathan is ultimately one who saves David's life. Uh, so Saul, but what we see here is Saul is probably what we might call a manic depressant today. I'm not a, I'm neither a psychiatrist nor certainly one in the ancient world. He, he has good times and he has really bad times. And uh, so, you know, David's trying to calm him down by playing the liar. Saul takes a spear and throws it at him. And David eluded him twice, which is one more time than I would have been there. <laughs> but it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Saul gives David his daughters, and, and, by, cre by, by, uh, in, and by involving his daughters in marriage to him, and then the possibility of a royal offspring, that's another sign that David is getting closer to the throne. Once again, over and over and over again, uh, I, I read one scholar who said, David behaves defensively but not aggressively. But Saul behaves erratically and crazily. <laughs> so uh, some people, some priests help David and shelter him. Saul finds out and slaughters them all. Um, he, is, he, is absolute, he absolutely becomes more and more and more bloodthirsty um, as, as this transition goes on. But what we find is that God is with David. God is with David. And eventually, I could go on and on about this, but what we find is that, that it is God's will for David to become king, and he does. That's, that's the lesson, probably, of 1 Samuel. And what we find with David is David embodies the nature of God. David embodies the nature of God. David is in many ways the central figure of the Old Testament. When we think of Moses, we think of Abram, but David sits here right in the center of the Old Testament as someone who embodies the heart of God. And God makes a covenant with David, an important one that says, I will make you king, but I will one day take one of your descendants 
and, play, and start a kingdom for him that will never end. And who is, we know that descendant is Jesus. See, David is, comes before Jesus. He is the, one of the titles of Jesus is son of David. After all, do you remember, uh, where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Did his parents live in Bethlehem? No. But they had to go there because God used a census to take Joseph and Mary, both of them descended from David, back to their hometown, which was Bethlehem. And it was in order to fulfill prophecy. David sits here at the center of the Old Testament. He is not perfect, but in many ways we see there that David embodies for these Old Testament writers strength and mercy. Strength and mercy. Uh, Saul has a grandson, uh, Meshibosheth, and he is one, it says, is um, lame in his feet. He is disabled. Um, and he is someone who could be a, a, a claimant to the throne, although they believe that, pot, that he wouldn't have been accepted in those, in those days. Uh, instead, whereas many of the people around David said, well, since you have taken over from Saul, what we need to do now is kill all of Saul's children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, everyone we can so that nobody can challenge you. And so we see in the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, there is a guy named Ishbaal, uh, also Ishbosheth, depending on your translation. He is a son of, of, uh, of Saul, and he claims to be king too. You'd think after Saul, he, he'd kind of be in, but, but not yet. And, uh, and then they go to war, and eventually uh, Ishbaal, Ishbosheth, is defeated, and so people, and, and, and as his power wanes, there are people who say, here's how we can get in good with David. We will go, we will surprise him while he is sleeping, and we will murder him, and then we will, um, we will claim credit for that. And so uh, they go and they say, David, guess what? That last guy who was, uh, we killed him for you. And, and now Saul, what would Saul have said? Yeah, I don't know. Well done. But what does David do? Do you know what David does? He says, you killed the son of a king, while he was sleeping. And so David commands his soldiers to kill them. Uh, hung their bodies behind the pool of Hebron and cut off their hands and feet. But the head of Ishbaal he ordered to take and buried in the royal tomb. See, that's really interesting, isn't it? We see with him the strength and mercy um, versus Saul's ruthlessness and bloodthirstiness. And so Saul is merciful, but Saul is, uh, David is merciful, but he is also a person who is real. It's really interesting in the story that I believe we have a famous story. Uh, actually, before I get there, let's talk about David, David consolidating religious practice. In 2 Samuel, we're now in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it, it's very clear David brings the ark to Jerusalem. The ark is that thing we saw created at the Sinai. The tablets of the Ten Commandments are placed in it. It is the visible presence of God. Uh, Chris is talking about that in his Leviticus series, this worship in the presence of the ark and the presence of God. David now has this ark brought to Jerusalem, brought to where he lives, to his city, and to be placed there in his presence. Now, part of that, I think, does have to do with the devotion of David, but what's the other sign that, it, that is made there? Is the uniting of the faith with the king. 
that now uh, to worship God also means to acknowledge David as earthly leader. There is no separation of church and state here. And that's very common in the ancient world. Um, I am not an archaeologist, but as I understand archaeology, oftentimes when they'll dig up a, an ancient city, they will find the two largest structures. What are they? They're the palace of the king and the temple of the god. And where are they often placed? R at the highest point and right next to each other. The symbolism is unmistakable. Right? You see it? The king and the, and the God, that they're, they're, there's the intertwining of religion and politics in the ancient world. The idea of separating religion and politics is largely a creation of the last hundred years. I mean, really, and, 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 uh, and depending how you interpret it. It certainly starts in the Enlightenment, 1700s. Tom, Tom is a, a scholar of this sort of thing, so, uh, but, but the idea of, of the separation of those two things um, even in England, it's interesting. I love The Crown on Netflix. Maybe you watched that. I love it. I love it mainly because there's these glorious English church scenes. I am totally a nerd like that. Um, and there's a great scene there where it talks about the queen. It talks about how the prime minister is accountable to the queen. Do you remember? Did any of you watch that? Do you remember who is the queen accountable to? Does she, she said, who, the queen is accountable to God. <clears throat> a secular monarchy can't work in England, but that's, not, that's a whole other story for a whole other day. Uh, because, because um, the, the, and it really becomes clear when you watch The Crown is that Elizabeth does not enjoy being queen. I don't know if she does now. She's probably used to it after 68 years of it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it is a duty that, that she believes she was chosen by God that this was her duty, this was her calling in life, was to represent God and to represent stability and decency and British values. And so there is kind of this ancient sense. Yes? Why did David have the ark put into another household for three months? The, um, in uh, our, you've got to be careful when you deal with the ark of God. Yeah. Do you remember what happened to those last people who stole it? It's like a try. Yeah, it is kind of a, a because remember the people, the, when the wrong people get it, they get sick and die. Mm -hmm. Better not be him, I suppose. Indiana Jones. You chose poorly. Yeah, or what is that? Uh, um, and it's clear, though, he brings it and he dances before the Lord. And so we see there, there's a uniting, there's a bringing together of those two things. But, um, but it is a bringing together in a clear sense that God is over David. And I think David acknowledges that. Um, but we find as time, uh, goes, as time goes on that we see David's commitment has changed. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins with a really, something that, that we'd skip right by, but I think it's really critical. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You see what happened now? He's become very powerful. He's becoming wealthy. 
And so what happens? All those things that got him all that, he doesn't, he's like, well, that's beneath me. I'll send Joab. I'll just stay here. What we see there is that one, that one, that because, because when you're anointed king over Israel, you're anointed as Israel's protector. You're not anointed to, to, to necessarily just preserve Israel or to certainly not to live off of its wealth, but to be its protector. And so what happens, we see that's the first sin. That's the first place that David goes astray. And that's kind of the nature of sin. Sin often doesn't start with a huge leap, although we find in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4 it does. But, but sin in your life and my life is more likely to get off course. You know, we, we're walking straight and then we're walking straight and we're... And then, and then we're way over there, right? We don't know how that happened. And then when we're way over there, uh, we do things we didn't think we'd ever do. You ever notice? You ever known someone like that? Has that ever happened to you? They're just, it's just like a little off-center. You're like, well, that's kind of weird. And kind of hope they don't keep doing that. And the next thing you know, they're way over there. Or maybe you've been there. I think that's what happened with David. It was not that he wanted to disobey God. But then what happens, he becomes involved with someone named Bathsheba. He sees the woman, and she is very beautiful. And if that weren't enough, he then asks, who is she? And when he finds out that wasn't enough, and so he says, bring her to me. And she comes, and he lay with her. I don't know if Bathsheba, what level of guilt or innocence she has, although I suspect she didn't have an option there. She became pregnant, and so obviously what do you do when, when uh, sin starts to find you out? What's your first response? Cover it up, right? So, hey, she's pregnant. We've got to make sure. She, we've got to bring her husband in. He, she's obviously a beautiful woman. He's been gone for a long time, only in the company of men. And uh, so uh, we'll just be able to cover this up, and uh, we'll, we'll, just we'll just pretend this whole event didn't happen. But it turned out Uriah had a commitment David did not. Do you know this story? And so Uriah comes. He says, okay, if Uriah has enough to drink, then he will. And he gives him a ton to drink. And it turns out he falls asleep on the floor. Okay. And so he's like, well, this guy is clearly not going to do it. And so uh, he, uh, he, he gets to his house, but he doesn't do anything. And so he says, well, maybe people will think, and instead has him killed. Uriah is so faithful to David that he carries his own execution warrant with him. You see, that's what happens to sin. He gets off course little by little until it ends in destruction. And ultimately, Uriah is killed, and Bathsheba becomes David's wife. She comes there, and he thinks, well, I've solved the problem. Now we'll just say, well, you know, uh, it's his child, or now my child. It doesn't really matter. But it turns out God knows, and he comes and tells David a story. It says, David, you know, there's a guy, he has a bunch of lambs. He has a whole flock of them, a whole field of them. I mean, thousands of them. You can't believe it. And then there's this one guy, his neighbor has owns one lamb. That lamb's a member of his family. He sleeps at his feet at night. Uh, the kids love it. They feed the sheep. 
And you know, that guy has a thousand lambs. He says, you know what? I really want that lamb. And so he goes and he kills the guy to take the lamb. You know what David says? That man should die. <laughs> Which makes sense. And then Nathan, not quite meaning it in the contemporary phrase, says, you are the man. Right? You're that guy. See, sin had gotten him so far off course that he thought everything he did was a good idea. But then when he looks back, he can't believe how far he wandered. The rest of David's uh, kingship is not as peaceful. Eventually he has a son, Absalom, who is uh, who revolts against David, feels David does not properly treat a terrible um, sexual violation of Absalom's sister, Tamar, uh, uh, um, Absalom's sister Tamar, I knew that, I knew that, and he revolts, uh, usurps the throne, uh, David flees, but eventually Absalom is um, defeated and is killed, is killed, and David though, again, strength and mercy says the king this is in chapter 18 verse 33 the king was deeply moved and wept and said if only I could have died instead of you and David uh, has mercy even on conspirators with Absalom and, uh, and, and spares him and spares him and so that is, uh, you know, that's David. And David eventually uh, dies. He's king for 40 years. And then there's some issue, who's going to be the next king? And David, uh, David says to Bathsheba, this is very interesting, God yet uses this sin and says, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king. Now, once again, is this transition peaceful? Not really. There's another, uh, there's another one of Solomon's sons by another of his wives uh, who, who comes named Adonijah, and he attempts uh, to, uh, to be king, but Solomon de is, defeats him and becomes king. Uh, he is noted as, uh, at this point, Solomon, it said, is given one, kind of like, it's like you have one wish. From God, and do you remember what he prays for? To wish it, wishes for his wisdom. And God says, I can't believe you didn't ask for money or power, but wisdom. So I'm going to give you those other things as well. Uh, and it is believed that that was probably that Solomon's reign was probably the time of highest communal prosperity, wealth. Uh, it is believed he was a he was a he was an expert at ancient economics, at trading. And uh, he brought all this wealth in. In fact, there's that story of the Queen of Sheba from far off who comes to him. Uh, such is his fame and renown. Uh, this is probably written now. We don't know. This is probably written from a later perspective of time of considerably less peace and prosperity. Uh, they, they have set the boundaries under David, under Saul and David. The, the, um, the occasional foreign incursions had largely come to an end. They had, in fact, expanded their boundaries under David's leadership. Uh, but at the time, what we're going to find with Solomon is even amidst this, there are troubles. There's trouble brewing. Um, 
he, he is called to build a temple and he builds one so grand it's so expensive, taxes the people into oblivion. The deficits go sky high and wealth becomes concentrated in the hands of a few. Sometimes that happens. And in fact, scholars suggest that possibly the taxes were so high, the distribution so uneven, that for the average person they would not have said they were better off under Solomon than they were under Saul or David. Even though as a whole they were, but for the average person they were not. And that will eventually lead into the problem that funds to the fall of the United Kingdom. Another problem Saul, Solomon has uh, is uh, that he has never learned to say no to a woman uh, who wants him. Uh, he has 300 wives and 700 concubines, which apparently are women he likes but can't quite get upgraded to wife status. I don't fully understand that. That's, don't, don't quote me on that. Uh, 40 years of French. Yeah, courtesans and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in in French, um, so he has a thousand women, and a lot of these women, and so we say, oh well, he just he just can't um, handle himself. That's not a hundred percent it. I kind of say that a little tongue in cheek about he can't say no to wives, especially wives, don't represent a desire, don't represent even like sexual desire so much as they represent the desire to be at peace with other countries. So what's the best way to be at peace with another country? Just marry them together. Unite the bloodlines. This works right up until World War I. Turns out all the kings in World War I were related to each other, so that's a bad example from history of that. Um, but, uh, but what we find there is that, that he's trying to expand his foreign influence and he expands his foreign influence by bringing in all these other nations, all these foreign wives, and they all come with their own religion. And so Solomon, it says, dabbles in the religion of his wives. If there's one thing God doesn't like, it turns out, we're going to find out with the prophets, there's two big things God doesn't like, abusing the poor and worshiping other gods. And so Solomon's reign ends not in greatness, but in this confusion, and he dies. And we'll pick up on that story next week, but I want to say a few more things on some of these other books that we read this week. Uh, you read the Psalms, some of you. Psalms are, uh, and you'll have more reading of that. There are 150 of them. They correspond the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, 150 of them, all unique. Some are very short. Some are very long. What's the longest psalm? Do you know? What, which number? 119. Which one's the shortest? I, I will verify. The, the shortest is 117. It's just, they're in the same part of the so, uh, yeah, So a psalm a day may turn out some days you really regret that. Uh, There's 176 verses of Psalm 119, two verses of Psalm 117. Uh, and so psalms are, and they, they come out of different genres. They represent the full range of human emotions. They are inspired by God, but they reflect the feelings, the emotions, the joys, and the struggles of everyday people. 
There are psalms that are praises of God. There are psalms that are laments. Laments are interesting because laments pour out our hearts to God. They acknowledge our own individual complicity in them. And then they also say, I am crying out to you and I am convinced that you are able. A lament is also in many ways a confession of faith. The most famous lament ever is Psalm 22, I think. And the most famous time Psalm 22 is ever intoned is Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some have suggested that, that by intoning just that first verse, that he is intoning with what limited strength he had, the entirety of that psalm. Uh, that psalm uh, that, and so, and, and so uh, rather than being a cry of separation, uh, as Psalm 22 ends, um, for dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over all the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall all bow down who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about him and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. See, that's interesting, right? That the turn of those laments from the beginning to the end. They're psalms of remembrance. I've really gotten into those lately. Psalm 78 is an example of that. And I know I'm going to have you turning like crazy. Um, Psalm 78 is lengthy, and it simply retells the goodness of God. It tells the story. You remember Deuteronomy 6? We said that's at the very center. He says, uh, tell your children about this. And that's a way they do it. There are psalms of confidence. 20, psalm 23 is a famous version of that. Confidence using metaphors for God. Metaphors you can think of in the psalms. Refuge, shepherd, light, rock, help. Think about that, right? The Lord is my shepherd. God is our refuge and strength. The Lord is my light. Whom then shall I fear? What we see here is these stories, they are individual but also communal. They are primarily meant for the worship of the temple. Many of them date to David's era. David may have written them. They have been, may have written, been written for David. They may be dedicated to David. Uh, and then some of them have no name at all. Some of them even have Solomon on them. We find that psalms are used throughout the New Testament. One-fifth of St. Paul's citations of the, from the Old Testament, one-fifth of them are from the Psalms. That's an all too brief overview of the Psalms, but they tell the story. They are real stories. Some of them are very difficult. Some of them are hard to imagine. Even John Wesley himself, he kind of abridged some of the Psalms because he felt some of the Psalms were not appropriate for Christian worship. Uh, there, there's a Psalm that ends, you know, blessed is the one who takes your small children and dashes their head against a wall. We'll do that in worship next week. You know, I can see you all looking at the screen like, blessed is the, mm, I don't know about this one. And then, you know, just think about that, that exasperation that people felt. And it is said that later when, the one, when, when Babylon fell, or was it when Assyria fell? I'm going off notes right now. When Assyria fell and Babylon took over, it was said that the Assyrians, the one who had destroyed 
the, the ten tribes of Israel, that their children were, dis, were, were destroyed against a wall. Like, we don't think that's a good thing, but like, it is deliverance from the one who had been brutal uh, to, had been brutal to the, the people of God. So we, then we get into the wisdom literature, and we talk about uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Solomon. I find Proverbs is one of those books that you either think it's the best book of the Bible ever, or you have no use for it. <laughs> I, I just that, that there's only really seems to be two ways that people seem to go with Proverbs. Um, wisdom is is not unique to Hebrews, not unique to Israel. Wisdom is well known as a genre of literature in the ancient world. In contrast to prophecy, it tends to be individual. Um, I one person said Hebrew wisdom is the art of success. I think that's why a lot of us like it. It's kind of how-to. It's practical. Um, it lacks the great themes of Israel's faith. There's no talk about covenant, no talk about worship in it. Uh, but underlying wisdom is this continual contention that to be wise requires the acknowledgement and the worship of God. The worship of God, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know that, you probably know that, that quote. Uh, some of the Proverbs are humorous. There's one that says, uh, a woman without sense is like a gold ring on a pig. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, that's my favorite. I don't know why. That's just so funny. Um, you know, like a gold ring, pig, it, they just don't go together. Um, <laughs> One might also say women in lacking sense don't go together, whereas men in lacking sense go right together hand in glove. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> so I don't understand some of, some of the, but, uh, but the Proverbs are uh, a sense uh, where we see God embodied as wisdom. We're talking about wisdom being present at creation. It's also a time when wisdom is personified as a woman, uh, most of the references in God are masculine references. Here is an example of a feminine reference to God. Um, and, and it's one that is, that is biblical. Um, we also see Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. Uh, most of us have, uh, are familiar with Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We have heard it at funerals. We have also heard the rock song. To everything there is a season time to be born, a time to die. Uh, Ecclesiastes is, comes from the Greek word for preacher, uh, because that's what we know. The preacher in Hebrew, the word is koholet, probably why they went with Ecclesiastes, the Greek version. And there we see someone, it's thought historically to be Solomon, but there's no evidence that it's literally Solomon that could be. And uh, it's someone who is probably coming toward the end of their life looking back and realizing that all the things they've spent their life doing, all the striving, ends up not being worth anything. The theme in verse, chapter 1, verse 2 is all is vanity. All is vanity. And I suspect many of you in here have a much better understanding of life in that way than I do. Because all those things, think how many of you think about all the things you thought were important 30 years ago that don't really matter now? I think the theme of Ecclesiastes is determining what really matters in your life. Does striving matter? 
Does making money matter? It, are those the things that will give you contentment and fulfillment? The preacher says no. The one thing that will bring you fulfillment is gratitude for and celebration of the simple things that God has given you. Food, drink, work, and love. Everything else is vanity, like something you see in the mirror but doesn't really exist. Vanity. We'll end on a higher note. The Song of Solomon. That's an interesting book. I don't know how many of you have read that. We don't, there is no book in the Bible that has more different ways to interpret it than the Song of Solomon. I'm just going to tell you right now. Uh, some have suggested Song of Solomon is a collection of ancient Israelite love songs. Some of the language is, even to modern ears, somewhat explicit. Um, some have suggested, I know some of you are like, wait, have I not read this yet? I've I got to get right to it. Uh, <laughs> um, read it this week. It's, it's, it's very poetic. There's a poetic nature. Uh, some of them, I, I, I suggest you read to your spouse. Some of it, maybe not. <laughs> read it first. Kind of like taking the ark into your neighbor's hometown first and then bringing it home. You know, try it out. You know, think about it. Work through it. Um, some have suggested that, uh, that it, it is a literal sense between two people who are in love. Some have suggested it is allegorical, especially early Christianity and a lot of the Jewish rabbis around the debate about whether to include it, uh, suggested that, uh, that it perhaps represents God's love and pursuing of Israel. The early Christians said this is about God's love, uh, self-giving for the church. Uh, some have suggested it was an ancient drama, although there's not much evidence that the drama was an art form in ancient Israel. Some have suggested it was a liturgical rite from a pagan religion, but that seems unlikely, given that pagan religions usually don't go so fare so well in the Old Testament. Some have suggested it was part of a funeral ritual, which really interests me because I've never heard it at a funeral before. <laughs> but the uniting of procreation and death, those two connections so linked, uh, not just in religion, but in, our, in, in, in minds, even. But in the end, um, I think we can say that we see here a lesson about human love and what it's like at its best, and that human love is a reflection of God's love. After all, 1 John tells us we love because God first loved us. And that the self-giving love between husband and wife created at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, reaffirmed by Jesus both at the wedding of Cana, but also when he says, for that reason, the husband, the wife shall leave her house, be joined to her husband, and they shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. Uh, and, and it's a rep reminder that in the Song of Solomon that the love between humans reflects the love between God and humankind as well.